Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos, or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. First thing is I want to thank those uh, people who came on board as Patreon supporters this last week. It did go over 100 supporters now. Thank you very much, folks. And uh, please, of course, that's no reason to stop if any of you feel that this channel is uh, entertaining, informative, and uh, educational, uh, which is the, uh, the goals of this channel, and you want to support my work and allow me to do this uh, full, full time, then uh, please do consider supporting my channel through Patreon. Uh, now, that getting out of the way. I also want to encourage anyone who has um, not watched the video that I put up this last Thursday about Scientology and mental illness to please check it out because I think it is probably one of the most important videos I've ever made. And um, the lighting in it is a little <laughs> interesting. I had a different light than I'm using right now uh, and I looked a little uh, pink. <laughs> Um, but just, just ignore all that. The content of the video is what's important, and it's very, very important content. Um, and I really want to get that video actually shared and, and out there to as many people who um, as it can, because the, the point of that video was not to just talk about, you know, how horrible Scientology was, but actually to educate people out there who are looking actively for help for their mentally ill family or friends and might end up turning to Scientologists without knowing it uh, for that help. And uh, that can lead to some pretty tragic consequences as has been in the news recently out of Tennessee. And of course, as we all know, uh, there have been earlier instances of uh, Scientology and tragic consequences with uh, trying to treat people who have real mental illness. So anyway, that video covers it in detail, and uh, so if you haven't checked it out, please do so, and please do share that around if you are so inclined. Now, let's go ahead and get on with your questions, because we got some interesting ones this week. Jake, do Scientologists discuss ways to beat the machine, i.e. the e-meter, when discussing security checking and such? Is there passed down lore about how to make the needle float, like hand lotions, or how to squeeze or not squeeze the cans, or drink a lot of water the day of security checks to allow energy to flow smoothly by decreasing your body's resistance so they will miss that overt and withhold from past life when you were a snail? Thanks for the question, Jake. And um, here's the thing. First, the first thing I want to talk about is the general attitude that Scientologists have about the e-meter, and this is really important, um, in the same way that it's important to understand, um, you know, when you get asked questions like, you know, how do people stay in this for so long, and how do they get into it in the first place, it has to do a lot with attitude. <laughs> and, um, you know, because when you're looking at Scientology from a skeptical, critical point of view, or from an objective outsider point of view, you're not looking at it the same way as people who are in it are looking at it, okay? So very few people who are in the world of Scientology are trying to beat the e-meter because they believe in its efficacy and they believe that it's there to help them and they believe that Scientology is something that's there to help, not to invade, not to hurt them, not to um, you know destroy their privacy or something like that. Th that is what Scientology is doing, but don't get me wrong. Um, but that's not how they're approaching it. 
right, when they're still a Scientologist and they're still in that mindset, then they tend to believe in and go with the flow of what's happening. There was a um, story that L. Ron Hubbard actually himself told, which I'll relate to you. Um, it was at an event, and uh, Hubbard, I'm sorry, Hubbard didn't tell it. A guy who knew Hubbard told it, and, they, and it was somebody who had met Hubbard, uh, kind of a rough character, actually, who um, had... I don't remember his connection with St. Hill in England, but he um, was sort of a, you know, kind of a criminal type of guy, and he, uh, self-admittedly, and he uh, met Hubbard, and Hubbard had, took him into his office one day, I just invited him in, I guess the guy was out doing work on the cars or something, and, uh, and he showed the guy the e-meter. And he said, here's the e-meter, and he, and he you, know, uh, you know, was telling him a little bit about it. And this, the story, as the guy related it, was he said, he said he looked at the meter and he was like, oh, I could beat that. And Hubbard kind of looked at him and said, okay, but it's not there to be beaten. It's there to help you. And that was actually a pretty good response in the context of Scientology and, and dealing with that, you know, that, that skepticism. Um, in other words, because you have that attitude and because you also buy into the idea that the meter works 100% of the time and can peer into your soul and, can, and responds on things that you are not even totally fully aware of yet when it's responding, that you have to be guided and directed to get the answers, your attitude about the e-meter is that it's there in the room to assist the auditor to help you. Okay, so um, that being totally crystal clear, um, you very rarely get people in the world of Scientology who are trying to beat the meter. However, it does happen. Um, and when it does, and it comes out that that's what the person was doing, they get in all kinds of trouble um, because it's, it's, it's basically looked at as being you know, actively dishonest, and which is in the world of Scientology is tantamount to being a criminal. Um, you know, because of this idea that it's there to help, right? And so you're actively, you're looked on as someone who is actively sabotaging your own spiritual freedom, right? So it's a, you know, it's a whole wrong attitude thing, and you get in a lot of ethics trouble for that. But uh, yes, there are ways to use one's body to get the meter to do things. And um, I'll, I'll tell you two examples of this was one is the floating needle, which indicates that the, you know, the, the needle on the e-meter does this kind of a motion. It's a, it's a, it's the, the definition of it is a rhythmic sweep of the dial at a slow, even pace of the needle back and forth, back and forth without change in uh, speed, uh, particularly, right? And, uh, that's almost verbatim. <laughs> and so, um, so this floating needle is supposed to indicate the end that you've reached the end result of the whatever action or process you're doing and that you're supposed to be in pretty good spirits when an FN appears. So a way to produce an FN artificially is to rub your bare feet on the carpet or on the, on the floor. Now you can hear when somebody's doing that uh, you know, if, if, they're not, if they're not doing it quietly, but if they have socks on or something, it's a little harder to hear, uh, especially on a carpeted floor. And I've seen people do that. 
and the needle starts doing this kind of a motion. And if they have to, and they have to move the feet real gently, real slow. This is not a, you know, this kind of a motion. You can see that immediately. Auditors are trained in, when they're trained on using the e-meter, there's a whole drill about recognizing body reactions that when the person's lifting a finger off the cans or squeezing the cans or, or doing something, rubbing the can against a garment or against their skin or something, that these produce noticeable reactions that are different, very different from emotional, mental responses that you see on a meter. So, so auditors are trained to look for and ignore body reactions. So the person who's faking it has to be really smooth. And, um, and you know, they'd have to like move their feet very, very subtly. But you could do that and you could get somebody who thinks that that's a floating needle. Especially one of the things about reading an e-meter, and this will be, you know, something I cover in more detail when I finally get that meter video done, is... Um, a lot of reading a meter has to do with confirmation bias and has to do with what the auditor is expecting to see. So if the person is sitting there going, wow, I feel great and I had this wonderful win and I'm just like out of my head right now and I think I'm exterior, you know, having, you know, having an out-of-body experience, they'll be watching the needle expecting to see a floating needle. So they'll read, they could read into whatever they're looking at and, uh, and expecting to see this thing, and they'll interpret the meter reading accordingly. Okay, another example, um, and just to end off on this question, but to give you another interesting example that's come up a couple times where a person wanted to get out of the Sea Org. They wanted to get out of their job. They hated it. They didn't like the pressure. They didn't like what was happening. And so they got on a meter one day in an interview, in an ethics interview, and they faked with, with can squeezing and touching the cans together, which produces a, an electric shock of the needle that does this kind of a thing, they produce what's called a rock slam, which is supposed to indicate a hidden evil intention on the subject being talked about or, or looked at. So in this case, the guy was rambling on about whatever he was rambling on about, but he was under the desk squeezing the cans and touching them together, causing the needle to do this kind of a crazy motion which is what a rock slam is supposed to be. So the person who was at the other end of the meter was like, ooh, rock slam, R slash S, right? Wrote that down, wrote down everything the guy was saying. And it kind of backfired on the person because he ended up doing the RPF. And, uh, and then it kind of all came out that he had faked it, but he was stuck on the RPF. So, you know, that wasn't so great for him. I think eventually he ended up leaving the Sea Org uh, through the RPF. So. Anyway, so yes, it can be done, but no, Scientologists do not sit around talking to each other about how to beat an e-meter. That would be the, one of the most severely horrible things that Scientologists would consider doing, and they would never talk about that amongst themselves. Jonathan Mark, what would someone with a job title OT Ambassador do? Do the letters OT mean he raises money through OT committees? Somewhere in the early 2000s, if I remember right, or late 90s, early 2000s, the, the concept of an OT committee uh, started becoming a th getting in vogue in, within the world of Scientology, and that was an effort to try to activate and get um, more volunteerism and more support from people who had achieved the state of OT and had gone back home to you know Denver or Keokuk or Paris or wherever it was that they were from. Because people at the public level of Scientology pay for their services and they do their services and they're really not 
under any written strict obligation to do anything else. Um, but there's all kinds of peer pressure and encouragement uh, from the staff and from the Sea Org to get those OTs more active and more working to help the orgs and, and uh, get more people into Scientology. So the OT ambassadors were originally, the idea was that they would be, uh, or the OT committees, uh, the idea was that they would be a committee of people who would meet maybe on a you know regular weekly bi-weekly basis at their local org and this would be the OTs in the field and you know around the org let's say and let's say in um, Paris you have um, I don't know I mean you know, 20 30 people who are OT uh, who are actively around doing classes or doing things and uh, and maybe they're not even doing classes but they're doing something they're around they're hooked up with their local Paris org they don't just disappear don't take phone calls don't want to talk to anybody um, these OT committee members will gather and they'll meet and they were originally it was pretty it was a fairly informal sort of thing as it was first put together they were just expected to start doing projects that would help the org maybe helping with the files or helping with some calling people to come to events or you know that kind of thing right and then in the 2000s um, Miscavige started making the OT committees more responsible for what was going on with the org he was saying hey look you guys need to be doing something about this. If you're going to say you're an OT, then you need to be OT and you need to start like taking some responsibility for, you know, your podunk org that isn't doing so great and you need to do something about that. So, because uh, then, you know, of course, none of the orgs are doing very well. <laughs> there are all these tiny little pipsqueak places that, we, as we talked about, are empty all the time. And if you think these ideal orgs are empty, I mean, you should see the podunk orgs. I mean, they're really, there's like nothing going on in those places. They got four or five staff. I mean, at least the ideal orgs have, you know, 20, 30, 40 staff, right? These little, like, Albuquerque or Las, old Las Vegas, I should say, Albuquerque, Hawaii, uh, Santa Barbara. I mean, these are tiny little orgs, right? They got, like, hardly anybody doing anything there. So Miscavige looked at that and went, well, look, we need to get more, more people involved. Why do we need more people involved? Because these orgs aren't making money. <laughs> Right? This is not, don't misinterpret Miscavige's intentions as anything other than, a, than money making, right? Because uh, if you don't have these orgs bringing people in and selling books and selling materials, then they're not, you know, doing a whole lot. They're not making any money. And, um, and so he said that you OTs are OT ambassadors. And, he's, and he first called the OT ambassadors, the, originally it was the OT8s. The highest level guys, right? They meet every year at the maiden voyage anniversary on the free winds, and that's in June. And there's a whole series of, they're there for a week, there's a series of conferences that Miscavige holds, and a lot of work is done to get them all revved up and on fire, and they, you know, see these events, and they and Miscavige briefs them. And uh, they get all this inside skinny on things that are coming, like the OT ambassadors were briefed about the release, uh, the coming release of the basic books before the staff were, before anybody else was. He was briefing them, like I think it was a year or two before those, all those books and lectures actually came out. And so they feel empowered and they feel special because they're being given this inside information that they can't tell anybody else about. And they're expected to go back home to you know Paris, Denver, Twin Cities, whatever, and rev up the rest of the you know people who are you know Scientologists in the area who, generally speaking, can see that the orgs aren't really doing a whole lot, 
and don't really know what to do about it. And so kind of have a, are, are in a bit of a malaise, right? Well, these OT ambassadors was an effort on Miscavige's part to, to drum up some morale and get some things going. And that then turned into, uh, very quickly, turned into fundraising almost exclusively when the Ideal Org program was announced in you know, 2004 or something, whenever, when, when that started becoming a thing. They were briefed on it first, right, again at the Maiden Voyage uh, events. And so the OT ambassadors are, you know, sort of puffed up public, not staff, who feel, you know, very, very self-important because of, of the status Miscavige give, gives them. Um, the staff don't think that they're more important than the staff, right? The staff members look at the OT ambassadors and go, yeah, you really want to impress me, sign a staff contract, jerk off. Right? They know it's not like the OT ambassadors come in and start giving orders to the staff, and they certainly are not senior to the Sea Org. They're just more puffed up public, okay? And, um, you know, some, some pigs are more equal than others, right? So that's the role of the OT ambassadors, and it's almost um, since 2003 or 4, when that ideal org thing started happening, it was the, the projects they were working on were almost exclusively had to do with fundraising. Um, but also had to do with sorting out central files and you know or various administrative things that they could come into the org and, and help the staff with, um, and that's about it. That's that's what that's all about. Andrea Struble, I was wondering about David Miscavige. I know he self-elected himself as COB, but what do paying Scientologists feel about that? There being no election, so to speak. Also, it seems so strange to me. Is there any electoral procedure within the Sea Org where the Scientology paying public participates? If I was paying that much money, I would want some say in things, or the ability to vote in people I think would be good for specific jobs. Does the paying Scientology public get any voting rights, or do they know anything about the high-ranking Sea Org staff, who they are, etc.? It all seems so mysterious. Okay, uh, there's a few things to uh, unpack here, so let me, let me try to just kind of run through them. First off, um, in, if you, the Sea Organization is a paramilitary group. It is not, and like the Army or the Navy or the Marines, you don't vote for who your commanders are or who your leaders are. It doesn't work that way. And um, David Miscavige is a member of the Sea Organization, first and foremost. And then he's the leading officer of the Sea Organization. He's the only captain, uh, who, the only person who holds that rank like in, in, re, you know, in reality, like that's his actual rank. Um, and I explained all of this in a, in, a, in a long video where I break down all the Scientology organizational hierarchy. And, uh, and so that you can watch that video to get how the whole structure is put together. So the C organization is not open to criticism, debate, or uh, input from the public paying Scientologists. They don't, they, they, it, would, it would be unthinkable to even uh, consider that that would be that way any more than us as voters would vote in who the generals or joint chiefs of staff are, you know, and at the level of the White House. That's just not, that's just not how it's, how it's put together. Okay, um, Scientologists at the paying public level and the staff members simply accept that this is the way it is. The C organization is granted, and the people who are in the C organization are granted a, a great deal of respect and admiration because of their dedication to the cause. So they're looked at as, uh, in the same way, I guess you would say, as the Pope or um, 
or uh, uh, cardinals, you know, the people in, at the Vatican, right? You know, the, 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 the normal run-of-the-mill Catholics don't vote for who their, their pope is or who, who their cardinal is. It, it would just wouldn't be, it wouldn't, I wouldn't even enter their mind to do that, right? Um, these people are named and chosen and worked out by an inner circle. And that's kind of how it's viewed within the world of Scientology with the Sea Org. Uh, in fact, Miscavige wasn't looked at as self-appointed. Nobody in Scientology thinks he's self-appointed. They think Hubbard appointed him. And Miscavige has worked very hard for decades to generate, to create that, that perception that Hubbard, you know, that he's there because Hubbard wanted him there. The people who don't believe that and who know otherwise, um, it's not just a matter of believing it, that they actually know what went down. Well, they're, they're few. There are, there are only a few of them, and, and they've come out of Scientology, and they have spoken about this. Jesse Prince, Nancy Maney, Mike Rinder, Marty Rathbun, I mean, people who were there. So that's how we know that Hubbard had nothing to do with appointing Miscavige to be, you know, the uh, heir to the empire, right? That's not, that's not how it went down. It was, uh, it was actually a coup, but you know, that's all, that's all lost in the, in the fog of time, you know, as far as the world of Scientology is concerned. And history has been rewritten very thoroughly to show that Miscavige has, you know, always been the, the chosen successor. So that's why Scientologists have so much faith in him and believe, they believe that. Um, now, as far as uh, other Sea Org members, high-ranking Sea Org members, Basically, Sea Org business is considered confidential and not something that uh, is any public person's business, right? The public, the public of Scientology are basically, all Scientologists really are told that they're kind of lucky to have found Scientology. There, I mean, there's a, there's a couple different views about it. There's so many things in Scientology, there's contradictory views, but there's the idea that it's sort of a fate or a karma that you find that you're in Scientology. You were, you were meant to be there. You're the upper crust of humanity. But there's also a bit of a luck factor too, right? Which is, which is looked at as, in other words, if you were to start questioning what's going on with the Sea Org, if you were to start questioning even what's going on with the staff as a public person, they'd be looking at you like, who are you to be questioning us? That's not your place. You don't have like... Shelley, like when uh, the story of how Tommy Davis dealt with Leah Remini, even a celebrity who's considered VIP and given all the ultra treatment, even when she was asking about Shelley Miscavige not being present at Tom Cruise's wedding, where David Miscavige was and that she hadn't seen Shelley in a while, Tommy Davis's response to her, to a celebrity VIP, was, you don't have the fucking rank to ask that. You don't get to ask about where Shelley is. It's none of your damn business. And, of course, this put Leah off, and she started asking more questions because she's a tough broad. But, uh, and, 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 you know, good for her because that's what eventually led to her, you know, leaving. But that's the attitude, right? So, so no public person is owed anything by the Sea Org in terms of answers or information. And even within the Sea Org, when you're at a lower level, like I was, when I was at the Western United States level, when I was at a continental level, um, I wasn't privy to anything that was going on at the international level. Um, I mean, I've learned everything I've learned about what goes on at the int base 
I've learned since I left for the most part. I didn't know about the whole, I didn't know about who was in charge of what because I wasn't there. And though it meaning I wasn't at the international base. And if you're not at the international base, you don't talk about what goes on at the international base, right? And people who come down from the international base and maybe visit, you know, the big blue buildings in Los Angeles or go to Flag or something, you, you, people don't grill them and ask them a whole bunch of questions about, hey, where's where's uh, uh, Shelly? Where? <laughs> don't do that. That's going to just get you in a lot of trouble, right? So, um, and they certainly, and they don't, you know, and I wondered, one of the things that sort of set me off was, was I was not seeing, you know, Heber, I wasn't seeing Guillaume Lasave, I wasn't seeing, um, you know, Ray Midoff, I wasn't seeing international executives that I had known about for years earlier. And I was wondering, where are they? But there was nobody to ask, because nobody could answer my questions. And the people who knew, you know, I wasn't in a position to ask them. Uh, so... That's kind of how that all goes down, and that's why people just kind of learn not to question things. You just kind of go with the flow. And again, remember in this that for the paying public, they really don't care that much about what goes on in the C organization. I mean, not only is it not their business, and that not only is it you know above their rank and pay grade, but they really just don't care. As long as they're getting their services, as long as they're getting what they're paying for, and they feel somewhat happy and you know somewhat like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, that's all they want out of Scientology, right? They're not there to um, do the right thing. They're there to get that carrot, to get that you know that that freedom, that that personal spiritual immortality, and that's and that's uh, that kind of. Um, self-serving idea and attitude is part and parcel of Scientology and, and being a Scientologist. It's a, you know, it's kind of a complex thing. It's not easy to summate, but I, I hope I'm getting across to you how that attitude works where, you know, and the individual public Scientologists are not in it to see to the greater good of Scientology. That's the staff and the Sea Org. The individual paying Scientologists are there to go OT and make it to the top of the bridge so that they can, you know, become, you know, OTs, become gods. And that's the point of what they're there for. So if they start questioning things, that threatens their ability to get up the bridge and go OT because they could get in a lot of trouble, and they know that, and so they don't, they don't go there. And I think that explains the whole thing. Maria G. 27 Hi Chris, love your channel. I have a question regarding the big events such as the LRH birthday event being held in Clearwater, Florida. It seems that at every big celebration, Miscavige and others give membership totals in the millions. Did you ever question the number of Scientology members by how many people were present at these celebrations? I am assuming it was only in the hundreds the last decade or so, but not like in 1993 when the war is over declaration was made. Is it not a requirement of the organization for all Scientologists to attend a few of these every year? What was the reason given, if any, for low attendance? Keep up the great work. Okay, yeah, Scientologists are expected to attend the events, but that doesn't mean all of them do. And as the years have gone on, the event attendance 
has gotten less and less. The uh, the war is over 1993 event was an anomaly because that was that was attended by people internationally. Um, people flew in. I mean, it was huge. Um, they only had a week notice. It was some big, gigantic thing. They were frantically calling everybody all over the world. And they had about 10,000 people show up at that thing. They have never, ever had an event even close to that kind of attendance. But they're not down to hundreds. It's more like thousands. The Shrine Auditorium in LA, I think, holds, um, I don't know, 4,800 people, something like that. And they don't fill that thing. They, they didn't fill it the whole time I was, I was there. And I was working directly on events for, for quite a while. Um, now, in terms of did I ever question membership totals, you know, and uh, us having millions of members, yes and no. Like I did, I looked at it, I went, God, millions of people, really? But I didn't really think about it too much until near the end. Um, because it's just sort of millions, okay, fine, millions, like you don't really, it's just a number, you just kind of throw it out there, it's not like we ever expected there to be millions of people show up at any one event. And like in Los Angeles, which is where I was most of the time, uh, there were considered to be about 10,000 some Scientologists there. Now, if there were millions of members, then there should be a lot more than 10,000 in LA, but again, we didn't really think about it too much, right? Um, didn't, in other words, we didn't do the math. We didn't, you know, and then again, I hope in my earlier question, I kind of got the idea across about how Scientologists, you know, their very attitude is to not question things. And that, that, that gets into the Sea Org as well. So the reasoning though, and in, in the minds of me and others as to why people wouldn't come to events or, or wouldn't show up had to do with uh, an expression in Scientology called dilettantism. And this is, a, this is a slang term, and it's a derogatory term for Scientologists or anyone who doesn't really uh, hardcore participate in something. They're dilettantes. Hubbard used this as a term to uh, say people who think that, you know, going bowling and, and going to the horse races, these are, this is the examples he gave, um, are, 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 you know, who, they, who equate that kind of activity, you know, with Scientology are really second-class citizens. They're to be looked down upon. They're not taking Scientology seriously. And, as, and Hubbard called Scientology a deadly serious activity. So if they didn't have that attitude, then they were out ethics. There was something wrong with them. And they were doing, you know, there was, there was just, they, they were, their attitude was wrong. And they were probably up to something that they were hiding, right, and, and keeping secret. So, so that was sort of how we thought about people who didn't show up to events, is, oh, they're dilettantes. And it was also a great excuse in our minds because we thought, boy, we really have to do something about all these dilettantes. And we would assume that there were all these dilettantes out there. Um, then there was, of course, people who didn't want to have anything more to do with Scientology. That was a bit of a different thing. That was a disaffected Scientologist, right? Oh, they're disaffected. That means they've really gone off the reservation. They're, they're, they are definitely out ethics, okay? They are they're just like... And so you got to recover those people, and I spent quite a bit of time doing that. When they weren't even showing up for things that they didn't even have to pay for to come to, then we just thought, ah, they're just out of ethics, they're dilettantes, right? And, uh, and that's kind of the, the, uh, the way that Scientologists brush those people off and, and explain to themselves why people aren't showing up. Katie Poland. Hey Chris, I understand that this is an old video, number three regarding being responsible for your actions. 
but I have a question in regards to what you said about the Nuremberg trials. I have read several accounts where soldiers or other people were forced to carry out horrible things by the Nazis threatening their families. For example, if you did not join the Hitler Youth as a kid, in some places the Nazis would threaten to send your family to concentration camps. While I agree with you that we are all responsible for our actions, do you think some leeway or understanding should be taken into consideration that they were being threatened and couldn't think of anything else to do? I ask this because I remember several years ago when Pope Benedict XVI was being called the Nazi Pope because he was in the Hitler Youth, but at the time it was required. I want to clarify that I am completely against the Nazis, but I pride myself on getting both sides of the story and having some degree of empathy. I know being the person I am, if my family was being threatened, I'm not sure I would be able to say no to someone while they have a gun to my family's head, so to speak. Yeah, of course. This is, you know, when you're faced with a Sophie's Choice or, in other words, an impossible situation where you lose on no matter what you do, then you are going to, to make decisions that are going to hopefully, you know, help keep your loved ones alive. Um, and I think just about anybody, I think in, I haven't looked into studies on this, but uh, the little bit of, of exposure I have had to sociology and psychology would tend to, you know, would, would have me tending to think that given the choice between killing a stranger that they've never met before and somebody in their family, that most people would opt to kill the stranger, right? I mean, you don't know who this guy is. He could be a serial killer. You know, you can dream up all kinds of rationalizations and and justifications for it, whereas your family, I mean, you love these people, your friends, you know, again, you're, you're closer, you're more closely connected to them. So that's how that's used as leverage. And of course, that needs to be factored into how much responsibility somebody needs to take for their actions, because there are context matters in all situations. Um, you know, there are no absolutes when it comes to morality, when it comes to judging the rightness or wrongness of an action. It always depends on context. Um, and if you don't believe that, look at, you know, uh, murder. If you kill your spouse or you kill somebody you don't even know, but if you just walk out one fine day from your apartment or house and take a butcher knife to, you know, a few people, that's murder. They're going to lock you away for that. If you do, if you go to another country with uh, an army uniform on and follow orders to kill people, and they, whether they're shooting at you or not, that's not murder, right? That's war or that's, you know, military conflict and, and you get a pass for that. Same action, different context. So things, you know, these kind of contexts matter quite a bit. Now, I'm not saying that um, it's good or, you, or that you get a pass for, you know, the, the Nazis, that, you know, for having the, carried out the atrocities they carried out because the other judgment factor here is the concept of greater good and how many people is this going to affect, right? If, and this is, this is where it really becomes a, a, a tough choice for people. Um, you know, you have, and, and, and philosophy classes debate this kind of thing. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to presume to have all the right answers on this. I'm just going to tell you what I think, which is if, you know, if somebody were threatening my family or my friends, um, you know, if I didn't do something, odds are I'd probably do whatever I could to do what it was that they wanted me to do, rather than face the horror of, of no longer having, you know, them being killed because of me or my unwillingness to do something. But if I was called upon to push a button and, and you know, and, and, and uh, nuke a city, 
versus, you know, my mother being killed, uh, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a really sucky situation to be in. It's also kind of an impossible situation if you really think about it. It's really a debate class kind of philosophical question uh, or an ethics class or something. But, but my answer in that situation is I'm not pressing that button and wiping out a city because of one person's life, no matter who it is. Me, my family, my friends, there is no one life that totals a city worth of people, right? It just that that equation doesn't work. So, you know, so there's a, so there's that part of the equation too, right? They're threatening your family, but you have to be the guy who's going to conduct the trains to the concentration camps and be responsible for, you know, mass murder of thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people. Yeah, no, I, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not doing it, you know. And if that means you're going to kill me or kill my family, um. Well, I'm sorry, but I can't, you know, be responsible for killing tens of thousands of people. So, you know, but is that going to factor into the whole, you know, equation? Yeah, of course it is. But I think that um, the concept of, of acting for the greater good also has to factor into that equation too. And that's my, you know, from my limited uh, ability in debate class and with ethics and morality and philosophy, that's, that's my uh, answer off the top of my head. It's time for Flash Answers! Richard Hull. As a Neverin, I find Scientology jargon fascinating. In your discussion of the McPherson event, you mentioned that she went Type 3. Please tell us more about the term. What are Types 1 and 2? Where in Scientology literature is Type 3 discussed? And what does it say about the phenomena? This last week, I answered this question in detail in my video about Scientology and mental illness giving the exact uh, Hubbard data about that. So go ahead and check that out. Alex Leone. What's the deal with Tel Aviv's Scientology headquarters? I heard they went indie. There is an official Church of Scientology. I believe it is in Tel Aviv in Israel. But there was, uh, I think in, in Haifa, there was a mission of Scientology. And they went indie. They, a few years ago, uh, just totally... Uh, left the Church of Scientology, officially resigned from it, and are operating as their own independent Scientology group. And uh, that's what's going on there. LEFC92. Do you think Hubbard was a graphomaniac, someone who has an obsessive impulse to write? Yes, I do, and I believe that was a result of his temporal lobe epilepsy, or TLE. I did a podcast on that, which I will put a link to in the uh, notes section below. Uh, because that podcast with Uval Leor was fascinating and covered in detail some of the symptomology and reasons why we thought that Hubbard might have uh, suffered from that condition. Okay, and that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around. If you have any comments, questions, feedback, good, bad, or sideways, leave them in the notes section, in the comments section rather, below, and I will uh, see all of it and uh, get your questions into my queue so I can uh, answer them as uh, quickly as I can get around to them. I've got a very long list of questions, by the way, and I'm, I'm sorry that I probably won't always get to all of them, but I do try to select out the ones that are most commonly um, being looked at uh, or asked for or the most interesting ones. So thanks a lot for coming around, guys. And uh, again, if you uh, would like, please go ahead and throw some support my way through Patreon. PayPal or uh, otherwise. 
But as always, thank you very much for your watching and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.